0: So I didn't win. I spent half a million euros on lawyers. I was in the public eye. I had the regulator looking into me. All sorts of, you know, personal things happened as a result as well, you know, losing friendships and all that sort of stuff. It was a complete waste of time.
1: Hello, fellow risk takers and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. And thank you for joining that mission today. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from AA Stotts Academy. And I'm here with featured guest, Sven Lorenz. Swen, are you ready to join the mission?
0: Hi, Andrew. I am absolutely ready to join the mission. Great to be here.
1: I'm really happy to get you on. And I know you and I had a lot of, let's say, they used to call it telephone tag, email tag, going back and forth. Each of us, you know, all have lining it up. So it's taken some some time to get to this point. So I'm really excited. And let me introduce you to the audience. Swen is a passionate public equity investor and the face of undervalued shares.com. With over 30 years of experience in investing, Sven has a knack of finding exciting investment opportunities in very unexpected places, which he discovers while traveling the globe. His trademarks include extensive investigative reports, which give investors plenty of inspirations and ideas to work with. And I remember watching a video and you talking about how many thousands of stocks there are, or companies listed. Sometimes you, know, you get bored with the stocks that we normally look at. And when I heard you talk about the number of stocks out there, it really made me realize what you're doing is pretty fascinating. So why don't you tell us about the unique value that you're bringing to this world?
0: Thanks, Andrew. So my number one mission really is to bring a different perspective and a bit of original thinking to this world and to the investment community. So the number of publicly listed companies in the world is probably somewhere close to 100,000. No one really has a a precise figure. And it depends a bit on how you count. There's some OTC markets that may or may not be a stock exchange, but you can buy, buy and sell shares. And I am a great believer that value is the greatest value and the best investment opportunities are found where pretty much no one else is looking. And nothing gets me more excited than to research a stock that no one else has done any research about, because that's where I find private investors in particular can gain an edge and be basically ahead of everyone else. And that's something I've been doing for 30 years now. And I think, so everyone associates me with traveling the world and, you know, looking in all sorts of weird places for investments. But I think what I In the meantime, I have accumulated is also a knowledge and an experience of different cycles. I've lived through a whole number of cycles in the stock market, in the economy. I've seen all sorts of strange developments going on in the world. And I think as you build up not just years, but decades of investment experience and research experience, that really helps you to develop some original thinking and to approach things from a different perspective. I've also probably just simply done a few weird things in my life. Like I I once lived in the Galapagos Islands for four years, where... I stepped outside of the world of finance and became CEO of a scientific organization that works on conservation. So, you know, speak of living in an unusual place and doing something that's totally outside of your field of of expertise in a way. And as a result of my my background story, I guess you get to read on my website, undervaluechairs.com, you get to read about companies that you wouldn't read about elsewhere. I'm aiming to write about trends that you may not have spotted yet, which may be controversial even because mm. people don't want to hear about you know, stuff changing and challenging their own views. I mostly deliver all of these things in long-form writing, so I just write a lot and very extensively, and I hope to make it interesting through storytelling and make it very accessible. Anyone who wants to check it out, I publish a free article every Friday. That free article, in all modesty, I would like to claim is usually so good it should actually be a paid-for product, but my actual paid-for product is a service where I deliver 10 research reports a year, very extensive reports. And that service is only $49 a year. So it basically costs per year what other people are charging per month or mm. you know, even worse. I think I'm, I'm pretty cheap. And I'm doing all of that out of a passion for writing. And because I want to deliver independent thinking to my audience, I don't get advertisement. I don't do any sponsored stuff. It's just really people are getting me for better or worse.
1: <laughs> and you know, sometimes when we look at these you know, opportunities around the world, they end up coming up in places like in some countries or jurisdictions where, oh, yeah, okay, that's an interesting idea, but now you're exposing me to the foreign exchange risk of that country that's a wreck and that type of thing. So when you are looking at these, you know, unique ideas that are out there, where are they? Are they, are we talking developed markets? Are we talking emerging? Are we talking frontiers? Like what kind of generally are the places that you're looking?
0: That's an extremely important question. And accessibility of investments is one of my favorite subjects because there's no use if I write about countries that are so exotic that no one could trade shares there or ever would want to trade shares there. Most of the stocks on my website are traded on a major exchange somewhere in the Western world. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to finding bargains that are overlooked and which others haven't written about yet, you really don't need to travel very far. I live in the British Isles and the London Stock Exchange is famous for being actually quite intransparent. You wouldn't expect that. But Mm. London has always been a placement market. Companies go to London and place shares, but the trading subsequently is not very well tended to. And there are many companies in London that don't really have proper research coverage. And, you know, that's literally on your doorstep. And London is the world's largest or second largest financial center. I write a lot about stocks that are often listed in the United States, but which may be from a different country. So, I mean, a well-known example is, for example, Mercado Libre, which is the Argentinian company that has built the reputation to be the Amazon of South America and Mm. e-commerce 10, 12 years behind in South America. So they're basically doing what Jeff Bezos did in the States, but, you know, in a cycle that is sort of like one step behind. So this is not exotic, exotic. It's just unusual. And most of my readers are just ordinary investors, you know, who couldn't purchase shares in Uzbekistan or Iran or one of these countries. Hmm. Sometimes I write about these places. It's fun. It's entertaining. It sort of broadens your perspective, but also shows you just how good you've got it by staying right at home. But, you know, Accessibility of investments is a big thing for me.
1: It's hard for some people to understand that there would be all of these you know, opportunities out there because they think, well, there's all these investment banks and there's all these fund managers and there's all these people. But the reality, I remember as a head of research in Thailand, we're constantly trimming our list. I don't want to cover that company. We're not going to make any commissions on it. And all of a sudden what you find is there's this enormous uncovered part of the market. Now, That in the old days would be almost enough to say there's all kinds of things that you could find. But my question is nowadays with everybody doing quant and so much more data out there, yes, there may not be coverage, but that doesn't mean that that company trading on, you know, 0.5 times price to book with a 20% ROE is not known. They're much more known, it seems like. So are there still opportunities? absolutely and to just give you a very current example which i think
0: summarizes a lot of things so back in april this year i wrote about a stock that's listed in canada and also in the states otc very easy to trade anyone with a brokerage account in the states canada or or europe could have purchased that stock and that company owned compensation claims against venezuela You know, speak of combining something that is easy to trade with something that is fairly exotic, but also was, I think, a very intelligent investment. Because if you followed what was going on behind the scenes and in courts of law with Venezuelan claims, it wasn't actually that difficult to figure out that something was going to happen in that area. And it's a niche sector, obviously. Something was going to happen very soon. And fast forward four months, that thing is up 150%. And it's purely driven by the fact that the legal situation has evolved in such a way that probably that company has a a wall of money, a very large chunk of cash coming its way before too long. And, you know, you can't argue with a company getting more cash than its current market cap. That means the share price will go up, mm. uh, usually. And, you know, speak of beating the market, looking in unexpected places, but still being able to just trade it quite easily. And it's also, I think, an investment case that made a lot of sense, there was nothing, you didn't have to be a rocket scientist or, you know, know your way around biotechnology developments or something like that. It was just a pure and simple compensation claim that went to a, a Western court of law and came out in exactly the same way, in exactly the way that if you have some kind of faith in property rights, this is how you expected it to come out. And it did.
1: It's interesting. I mean, there are so many opportunities. I have a online class called Valuation Masterclass. And basically students have to value in the boot camp, which is the first part of it, the first six weeks, they have to value, they value one company with me, which is a company called Fastenal in America, which is very fascinating, you know, company. It's also, I would, I looked at 20,000 companies across the world to find the company with the cleanest P&L and balance sheet. And that's it, that company is it. And the reason why I was looking for that was because I wanted in the foundation part of the valuation masterclass i didn't want confusion about you know let's talk about you know goodwill and equity income and all of those things it has none of that so it's a really great simple company and then they value one company that they choose and then later in the professional part of the valuation masterclass they value nine more companies three of them are once they've chosen But the reason why I'm mentioning this is because yesterday one of my students just graduated, which is very hard to do. It's about 150 hours to get to the end. And he presented his final company, which was a shipping company. I never heard of this trading on half times price to book, solid ROE, good long-term performance. You know, it wasn't like it was in a tragic situation called Danaos. I'm not sure if I pronounce it right, but D-A-N-A-O-S. And I was like, Yes, there are lots of opportunities out there. And so that's just an example of one of my students bringing up an opportunity. His presentation was excellent. And it made me, you know, definitely interested in the story.
0: Yes. And there are plenty more out there. Imagine a pool of companies that consists of 100,000 companies. And I never checked the numbers, but I'd I'd make a hand-waving guess. At least half of them have no, no real research coverage. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Surely there's something to be spotted out there. It just takes a lot of hard work. I, I like to call it the brute force approach. You just have to sit down and look through companies individually, supported by the gut feeling and the expertise that you build up over the decades. But sometimes you just have to sit down and you know and look at things that you haven't come across yet until you
1: spot something that's worth digging into deeper. When someone comes to your website or they, they start signing up to get your research and the work that you're doing. Sometimes some guys in this situation produce some great stuff about what to buy, but they don't always tell you when to sell. Like it's just a flow of research, and so some people solve that by saying, "Here's my model portfolio," and therefore you can kind of know when I'm positioned in something and when I'm not. How do you handle that? You know what what is it like in your style? It's a very important aspect. I
0: have made a very conscious decision to not have a model portfolio simply because I feel very strongly that portfolio management is a whole different skill set and a whole different subject as well. And you probably know the famous example of Stan Druckenmiller, or maybe it was George Soros basically saying that, I mean, picking the right investments is one thing. He actually makes most of the money from weighting things in the right way in his portfolio, sometimes just You know, really going for it in terms of portfolio weighting and conviction. I have very diverse readers, stating the obvious. Everyone has sort of different preferences and needs Mm. and is it in a different phase of their life. I don't claim to provide any kind of investment service where people could, you know, use my research to build a portfolio based on that. I just want to provide inspiration, ideas you know some people might just say you know anything that's when buys i sell you know like do whatever you want with it but there's no model portfolio and i strongly urge everyone to come to their own conclusions and educate themselves about portfolio management as a totally separate skill set to investment research one has only so much to do with the other
1: you mentioned something i i wanted just to talk about a lot of the different stuff that you're doing because i think it's great and it's unique and then we'll get into the story but one of the things that you mentioned was that you you know you talk about trends that are happening trends that people may not you know necessarily like and i'm just curious if you could give us a little teaser of some things that you're thinking about that you think other people either don't agree with don't like or aren't thinking about what is one or two things that's on your mind
0: well very much on my mind right now i think we've just seen peak woke for lack of a better word and that's obviously one of the most polarizing subjects and it's very broad under you know the whole woke and political polarization you can you know put the whole renewable energy subject mm. politics what's happening in media etc cetera, etc cetera. and i think where i have sensed a tipping point and we have just you know thrown my hat into the ring a couple of days ago is the whole subject of fossil fuels i've long been saying that fossil fuels will be around and will be used heavily. For much longer than you know we're being made to believe and everyone is in favor of protecting the environment and you know energy transition has all sorts of advantages and there's business to be done and technology is advancing totally undisputed but until now or in the last you know years if you made a case for fossil fuels, and you made a positive case for fossil fuels. And you said, you know, this is what the world is running on. And people would descend into poverty, and the whole world would not be a great place if we suddenly stopped using that stuff and used it actively and actually invested into producing more of it for at least a certain period. You were castigated, and the stocks of oil companies, oil and gas companies, were pretty much the bad guys. And I sense that we're currently having a real turning point, a tipping point, where suddenly these worries are falling away these worries of i don't want to invest into oil and gas because it will be stuck in a in a value trap forever or because my wife will hate me or my my children will hate me for that i think that's rapidly vanishing right now in a and it's never a single factor it's always a mul- i mean the world's a very complex place and everyone has you know lives in a little bubble and has a a limited view of what's actually happening in the world but my sense is that oil and gas stocks are ahead of a, a renaissance and they're doing so from a very low valuation basis with a lot of cash coming in and there is a need for capex and raising money for this sector is only possible if you offer extraordinary returns on investment and so i've just published a research report on on shell the mm. british oil and gas company which is the second largest mm. in the world behind exxon and i, I see lots and lots of signs for that and i mean to stick with the woke so i know of for example Sports retailers who are currently saying, you know, we we want to stop doing advertisement based on inclusivity, diversity, body positivity, and all these things, and just go back to having sports and fun. <laughs> you know, it's almost <laughs> revolutionary. So, in my perception, that's happening. If you write about that, of course, you upset all sorts of people. But yeah, that's something I've stuck
1: my head out right now. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, one of the things that I think you learn over the years is that. Things move in waves and, you know, sometimes popularity, something becomes popular and then at some point it turns and the woke stuff is really, you know, I've been thinking a lot about it in particular in terms of Thailand and I've seen a lot of that woke ideology coming from the US in particular, starting to, to come into Thailand and it really, much of it runs counter to the way people think here. So it's interesting to watch how it kind of, you know, comes together, particularly in the case, let's just say of of transgender, Thailand's been a pretty accepting place for that. Like they don't, they're not a big deal and they don't need, you know, somebody to come here and say, we have to have drag shows because they're not big on drag shows to their kids or something, but they don't have a problem with, you know, Trans. So it's just it's fascinating to watch how it's coming to Asia and how Asia's responding or not responding and, and what happens. But I do have a little trend that I was thinking about when you were talking that I, I've got I, I don't I think I'm far ahead of everybody on this one. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, go ahead. So I think that ESG is going to be renamed in the future. And I've I've renamed it. And I'm just going to start and throw the renamed name out there because I think it should you know, take root. And that is, every time I say ESG, I always put a word in front of it, which is bullshit. And whenever I teach my students, I think, bullshit ESG, bullshit ESG, that's bullshit ESG. For first reason is that the G should not be connected with the E and the S. G is a very simple thing that's dealing with the agency problem between owners and managers of business. So now you've got the E and the S and now what you find is that anytime you dig deeper into that subject, you find it's all ambiguity, it's no clarity, and it's a lot of pressure and CEOs and CFOs are under tremendous pressure now under this thing. And I had a CFO here in Thailand told me, we had she had an auditor tell her that they're going to have to start taking a provision because of their ESG score. This won't go on forever, but right now it's, you know, it's riding high. And I think the other part of that prediction is that stock exchanges are going to kill themselves because if they become the enforcers of ESG and now stock exchanges like the London Stock Exchange are buying ESG rating agencies, and all of a sudden you've got them implementing enforcing ratings on the stock exchanges and profiting from the ratings agencies that they're taking stakes in, all of a sudden you have this Incredible money and manipulation machine that, you know, I think we may be, it may be time to start some new markets out there that don't trade in ESG. But, anyways, that's my nonsense talk. Nothing like all the work that you do.
0: (laughs) Love it. And I believe in the end, the world always reverts back to common sense. And whether ESG is common sense or just something, you know, to market products that otherwise people might not buy because they're not good enough remains to be seen. I'm very skeptical. And I've seen too many of these ads come and go. And you know, 10 years later people scratch their head and wonder why did anyone ever bother really?
1: Mm. Well, I could go on and there's so much interesting stuff about what you do, the way you think and all that. So I just want to highlight we'll have all the links in the show notes and really want to encourage everybody to learn more. And 49 bucks a year, come on. That's got to be the best value out there. Now it's time To share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story.
0: So, this worst idea ever very much fitted the profile of what I liked to invest into, which is something that's overlooked. It seemed to be appealing to my common sense, it had huge potential. And I felt that. I was ahead of everyone. It was a German company. Yeah, speak of staying close to home, since I'm obviously German. It was a wealth manager and a fund manager. It's a company called PEH in Navy alphabet. That's Papa Echo Hotel. The actual name is referring to the name of the founder, which is Peter E Huber, and it's a fund management company that listed in the late 1990s through what you could call a quiet listing. So they didn't do a, a big IPA with a placement. They already had a number of a good number of shareholders and then this they simply decided to list the stock on a stock market that's something i quite like because mm. then suddenly there's a new name on the on the list of publicly listed companies but with virtually no headlines accompanying it because it's not an ipo so no one wants to really report about it and that company came with great fundamentals had a superb dividend yield growth prospects and growth rates from the past were great so you were basically buying growth at value prices The market cap of the company was just 50 million euros, so five zero million, so virtually nothing. It was really a micro cap. But it set out to conquer the German market for independent fund managers and wealth managers and take away market share from the banks. That was the big idea. And that was something I believed in a lot. So I bought an initial stake. And then in 2003, during the dot-com crash, a major investor got liquidated, and when he was just you know, it was a forced liquidation at that time I just you know bought as many shares as I could get hold of and I got to a 10 percent stake in the company and eventually twelve and a half percent and that meant that suddenly I was on the on the public register first of all and I come back to that it also meant that I was just highly visible and I had actually bought this stock or most of it a good part of it at a pretty low price. So the whole question whether it was my worst investment ever in terms of loss from the actual investment is something we'll get back to at the end. But where it started to go wrong was when a competitor wanted to buy up companies in that space. And that competitor felt it was a great idea to not approach the CEO who was the major shareholder, but to instead call me first and say, hey, Sven, you know, would you sell? And secondly, do you think other major shareholders would sell? And could you, as sort of like the independent entity here, someone who's not on the board, who's not closely connected to the company, could you somehow, you know, do a bit of a survey, speak to people and see if something can be done? And little did I know what I was going to kick off by having that conversation with people, you know, totally informally approaching the CEO and and a variety of other large shareholders. And I think what I had underestimated in retrospectives that some personality types are just call it manipulative, call it toxic call them psychopaths. It's This is a very complicated subject, but basically the CEO I was speaking to was not entirely straightforward in dealing with. And he said he wanted to sell, but now I know he didn't really want to sell. But I took his initial assessment, you know, let's speak to them as a permission to speak to other shareholders. And it turned out that others wanted to sell as well. And For most of them it was just a matter of receiving the highest offer as possible as you know as you'd expect it's it's capitalism it's the stock market but it all became complicated and contentious and the details of that would be first of all very complicated and i don't want to risk any defamation lawsuits because this is just way way in the past and i don't want to open that whole you know thing again but it's just since you asked me about my worst investment i'm very honest that this was certainly it to cut a long story short I was eventually the person publicly associated with being the head of a group who wanted to sell the company. And it became an activist case with me heading the activists, nothing of which I had ever aspired to. It was just events happening and then the media reporting. And there's this wonderful old saying that it's very easy to start a war, but to actually stop a war, to get it to an end is the difficult part. And it turned highly contentious, very toxic. The company eventually asked the regulator to look into my affairs and they accused me of all sorts of things. There's stuff happening that in retrospective, I have to say, you know, various people should have really started defamation lawsuits against each other. But it ended with me, and that's the key point really, it ended with me narrowly losing a contentious proxy battle. And narrowly losing doesn't really help you. You just, you know, either you win or you lose. So I didn't win. I spent half a million euros on lawyers, I was in the public eye, I had the regulator looking into me, all sorts of, you know, personal things happened as a result as well, you know, losing friendships and all that sort of stuff. It was a complete waste of time. I don't know, actually, I can't say for sure how much I lost on the investment. I don't think it was actually that much. It was just three years of my life, lawyers fees, toxicity, there's a digital footprint of it on the internet, you know, which is not to your advantage. Mm -hmm. I eventually sold my last stock in 2019. I should have sold a lot earlier, it was quite a damaging story, mm. and and there are lessons that I learned. I have to say that as well. So it's great actually to speak about it ten years later on because now I can look at it from a positive perspective. What what did I learn?
1: Well, let's let's go through.
0: How would you describe the lessons that you learned? So I think there are a handful of things I learned, and I, I'll go through them sort of in order of increasing priority for investors. So that's the first ones I mentioned are not really that are not likely to be a high priority for most investors, but then the ones that I mentioned afterwards probably will be. The first one, that going above the disclosure threshold, if you're an investor, is a dangerous thing. Obviously, for most investors, that's never going to happen. You have to buy at least 3% of a company before you have to disclose something. The problem that happens is that going above the disclosure threshold influences your thinking, because to go below it again would mean that everyone knows you're selling. And then once you're associated with a company, I mean, you know, it's not a bad feeling to, you know, be the big wig investor who's just disclosed his stake. You know, it's 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 good for mm-hmm. your ego as well if you if you're a young chap like I was at the time. You then wonder how does it perceive the markets or the public's how does it influence the market's perception of me if I sell, if I go below the disclosure threshold. So you stop thinking about it purely as an investment, and then your ego gets in the way, and that's just a, a terrible thing. Closely related to that, I think anyone should very carefully consider whether they ever want to be involved in any kind of activist situation. Activism is hard. It's very time consuming. It can take over your life. It can take over years of your life. And a lot of money goes into lawyers, which you'll never get back. And I have to say nowadays, I think it's very important for investors, but also for anyone really to educate themselves about personality types. You want to be able to spot psychopaths. You want to know what a narcissist is how do you spot people like that and then you have to be aware that a lot of them end up in the c suite because they are extreme personality types and they have a much higher likelihood by a high multiple to end up in ceo positions or chairman positions and all that so you'll encounter all of those and i think also in day-to-day life choosing a spouse choosing a boyfriend girlfriend stuff like that you know educate about Educate yourself about extreme personalities is something that comes in majorly helpful. Mm. But probably the most useful aspect that came out of this and which every investor should really consider is that you have to very carefully consider the liquidity of the investments you're holding. And whether you're buying a large stake in something or you're buying an investment where liquidity could just simply dry up for reasons that you may not even be able to anticipate, if you get stuck with something, that's terrifying and potentially existential, and I'm a big proponent of investing into stuff that's liquid, where you can get in and out quite easily, even under extreme circumstances, which is one of the advantages that private investors have, and you shouldn't give that that advantage away. That's my number one lesson, really, that I want to pass on to everyone. Carefully consider liquidity in your portfolio. It's super important.
1: So maybe I'll share a couple of things that I take away, but before I do, let's just review those lessons going above the threshold you know can be a problem it starts to influence your thinking your ego gets involved and that is the first one you also talked about consider getting involved in activism like it's a huge challenge it's way beyond what most people think and then learn to spot narcissists and psychopaths and educate yourself about that and they seem to cluster in ceo offices and then uh, consider liquidity And liquidity is such an interesting factor when it comes to risk management. One of the things that I was thinking about when you were talking, you know, is investing is hard enough to get up above the radar and out there just makes it 10 times harder than just focusing on what you got to do. And so just any distraction can take you away from making the right investment decision. That's the first thing I thought about. The second thing about activism, I remember there was an event in Thailand where the SEC talked about new policies that they were coming up with, with they wanted fund managers to write letters to companies as activists. And that it was part of what they expected of fund managers when they saw behavior and all that. And I raised my hand, like, what if I don't give a shit about, I don't care about them. And I just, I'll get out and it's not my investment style. And this is totally against small investors. Yeah. I mean, if I've got a huge company, you know, investment management company, and I have the resources, you know, my vote counts, but it doesn't mean anything if I write a letter to someone and then you're just disadvantaging me. And I think the other thing I thought about it too, is that nowadays with the media mob that's out there, the problem that you face is that you don't really want to get into a political battle unless you got an army. If you've got 100,000, 500,000, a million followers that support your way of thinking, you've got a defense against a crippling media and social media mob that can come after you. And so I had some particular case where on Twitter I I interjected myself into something and I very quickly retreated because I realized I don't have the army and you can't win out there without the army. And then the last thing, you know, the liquidity thing I think is so valuable. And I hear so many stories about people getting into illiquid investments and then they can't really get out. And I think for many people, liquidity is such a critical thing and they don't always think about it. It's not to say that you don't want to have some illiquid investments, but just be very careful about the size of that liquidity and expect that you're going to get a huge upside for taking on that liquidity risk. So those are the, some of the things that you know you triggered in my mind. Is there anything you would add to that? I think you summarized it perfectly, really. Can't really add much to that
0: other than to just repeat. People underestimate to what extent liquidity can dry up in extreme situations. And you can obviously also turn the argument onto its head and say that in markets where there's limited or no liquidity right now that's where you in turn also find some of the best investments but you have to be very specialized in that you really have to make that your mission as your average private investor i probably wouldn't wouldn't attempt to do that And maybe one more thing about activism. So I was an actual activist, but a lot of private investors fall for the glamour of following an activist. And they read about it in the newspaper and then they follow this guy thinking that he actually knows what he's doing. You know, he's a strong dude. He will somehow push through his agenda. There are a lot of there's quite a bit of research about how activism on the whole doesn't actually pay off nearly as much as people think it does activism usually pays off in the first couple of weeks or months because Mm -hmm. the media hype surrounding an activist case drives up a share price. And then usually more often than not, things get stuck and it takes longer than expected. And then the returns go down again. And so, you know, if anything, ride that wave when an activist case surfaces, but be very careful not to get stuck for too long because you think the
1: activist is going to sort it out. So many times they just don't. Sounds a little bit like buying rumors, selling fact. Once it really gets out there that it's happening, the market takes it and then you know you get the majority of the gains. The liquidity thing is interesting because, you know, let's go back to John Maynard Keynes' statement, which is the market can stay irrational longer than you can stay liquid. So the point is, is that there's great opportunities in illiquidity. It's just that you have got to be able to outlast that irrational market when the market is not behaving the way you think it should be. (laughs) So let me ask you, so based upon what you've learned, I want to think about a young person, a fund manager, an investor, an individual who's, you know, getting themselves kind of into this type of situation. It's maybe just at the point where it could spin out of control or they could stop it or something like that. What's one action that you'd recommend that they would take to avoid getting caught in this quagmire that you've described?
0: Oof. Well, I mean, just be very aware of what we talked about the last 30 minutes and just don't get involved.
1: <laughs> yeah. Just hang up the phone when the guy calls. Are you, did you, uh, no, sorry, busy. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah. Generally. No, I mean, no kidding. I tend to find that speaking to CEOs and speaking to people in companies can be quite detrimental to your judgment. I think to generally not take phone calls, not meet people and just be a hard-nosed, unemotional analyst sits at home, even though that may sound like a bit of a sad life, I think it probably improves most people's investments performance. Unless again, you get specialized in meeting CEOs and that's another skill. I don't have that. I try to stay away from CEOs and the like because they give me, they're very good at telling a story and I don't have the, the mental tools to withstand their salesmanship. So I'd rather analyze something from the comfort of my home, looking at my screen.
1: When I talk to my students in my valuation masterclass, I tell them that when I first started, first of all, I never read the research of competitors. I just was so afraid that the ideas that they were talking about were going to come in my head. And then that's what I was going to be thinking as opposed to trying to come up with my own idea. The second thing is that I very rarely met management. And in those days, I mean, I started in 93, so we're probably close to the same time. In Thailand, you know, I mean, you weren't going to, even if you could meet the senior management, you weren't going to get a straight story and you weren't going to get a straight story either because they were pumping it up or because they were manipulating or because they didn't know. And they didn't know the results of the company until after they came out just as much And so I really build a career around not listening to the company that much. And it's a little bit baffling for people nowadays because you're overloaded with information coming from their websites and all that, which I'd say going to the websites, getting information off there, you know, that's not too bad, you know, try to understand the company through that. But when you're starting to really make your judgments, try to use your independent thinking, which I think is, you know, what, what you're trying to, to help the world do so. Normally, at this point, I ask, what's a resource that you recommend? And I, I just want to say that the resource is, you know, the work that you're doing. And that is such a great, you know, value for money. So that, that would be my suggestion. Do you have anything else that you would add to that?
0: Yes, I'd add one particular website to it, which is called the Activist Investor, TIA, the Activist Investor which is a sort of a news aggregation website. You you can sign up to an email list and then they occasionally send you emails with the most recent articles about activist investing, also academic research and sort of quirky articles from niche publications that you wouldn't usually come across. Great, great service for free. That's something I recommend you sign up if what we just talked about sounds of interest to you.
1: Excellent. So the activistinvestor.com I can see right here and I'll put that in the show notes. Great, great resource. I haven't actually seen that myself. All right, last question. What is your number one goal for the next 12 months?
0: Well, I just love writing. So I want to write more for my website and people always tell me, oh, you write so much. And I, my answer is always, I feel like I'm not writing enough because I've got so many exciting ideas and subjects that I want to research and write about. So becoming a better writer, with each year that passes is something that's on my list and just, you know, do more of the same and having fun.
1: Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. And I think we took a step forward today. As we conclude, Sven, I want to thank you again for joining our mission. And on behalf of Starts Academy, I hereby award you alumni status. For turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment, do you have any parting words for the audience?
0: God, so much. But I think just keep listening to a, to podcasts like yours, because as an investor, you never stop learning and you have to learn from others. And the service you're doing is, is amazing. And I'll share that with my audience as well. We have to help each other by sharing these stories. And then eventually, you know, it improves all of our skills and everyone wins.
1: And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well, fellow risk takers. Let's celebrate that today we added one more person to our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott saying, I'll see you on the upside.